Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight the incredible thought leaders and personalities in our community and discover who they are at home, at work, and in between. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm SWE President Dana Johnson, and welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on social media at SWE Diverse Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined once again by speaker, author, and social impact advisor, Michelle Sullivan. Michelle is also the former president of the Caterpillar Foundation and director of corporate social innovation at Caterpillar, Inc., During her 30 years at Caterpillar, Michelle transformed it from merely transactional to global and strategic. Michelle was named by Inside Philanthropy as one of the 50 most powerful women in philanthropy and also served as a U.S. delegate to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. This is Michelle's second time with me on our show. If you haven't had a chance yet, check out our first episode, which was episode 194, and check out... Sui's keynotes from the We22 conference available on our YouTube channel, where you can see Michelle's keynote address. I am so excited to have you here today with us, Michelle. Thank you for joining me yet again. Oh, it's great to be with you. I had so much fun. I really did. It was a great couple of days. Excellent. I'm so happy to hear that. And that was actually what I wanted to start our podcast with, was telling me a little bit about your experience at We22 and what it was like to be up on that stage in front of so many women? You know, anytime you get quite a few women together, it's just, you know, where they're away from, you know, a lot of the priorities they have and they can be themselves. And you could tell that everyone was having a lot of fun, that I had a lot of comments about how much they love the conference and it's so welcoming. I was surprised at how many students were there. I didn't realize that so many students came and they were so positive about the networking and the learning activities that they had and some were interviewing. And it's just a, it seemed like a very magical couple days for them, for everyone. And it was, you know, I'm not a part of the group, but it makes you want to go because, you know, they're just such wonderful women. It was quite overwhelming for me. And I have to say it was one of the best atmospheres I've ever been in. And and I mean that sincerely. As president of SWE, that's really touching for me to hear. I do want to point out though, my husband was in the audience as well. So it wasn't all women. I think there was a few men. Yeah, there were a few men. I saw him. (laughs) And I can, (laughs) can, it is good. I can confirm that he was as touched and had as many heartwarming, warm fuzzies from listening to you as the women did. So resonated with all people that were there that day. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to touch on one thing. While we were doing our question and answers, I know that there was a group of students, you mentioned the students in your comments, that was very committed to getting you situated on your plane the next morning. How did that end up playing out? You know, I got more help from sweet people than I knew what to do with. And, and it was so, it was so heartfelt and funny and welcomed. And I did see them. And some other people from SWE, when I went to check into my hotel, 
that others were checking in as well. So the whole rest of the evening and into the morning, I got the sweet folks, which was great. <laughs> it really was. We we laughed some more and, you know, they had some questions and I asked questions of them. And that's when I didn't realize, you know, how many students and why they came mm-hmm. to the conference. So it really was a great experience to have with them, you know, one-on-one as well. Excellent. And I know a number from your area, even though U of I is not necessarily right in your backyard, I think it's not too far from Peoria. I would guess we had some Bradley students there as well. And you did. And I just, to your point, there's a, a bunch of students and the energy from them that I, all of the students that I ran into on Saturday was just through the roof. And that was even before your keynote. So I can, mm. I can only imagine what they felt like afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Well, we were talking about all of the help that you were getting from the SWE people or SWEEPLE as we like to call it. One of the questions that I had is a little bit broader than just helping you. Do you have any advice on how people like us can better understand how to help all other people? I know during your keynote and some of the Q&A, we went through some of the things that you had done while you were building your house and buying a car that helped you help to make sure everything was more accessible for you. But when we look broader across the entire population, where can we start? You know, we all need help, don't we? In various parts of the day or week or any time in your life. And a lot of the times it's with things that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give an example. A really good friend of mine recently lost their nine-month-old. And, you know, because I'm close to her, I can tell, you know, that she's not, you know, she's going through some very hard things. But unless you really looked or listened closely to her tone and, and mannerisms right now, you wouldn't know that. And then people, you know, there's a lot of people in financial struggles and, and just really having trouble coming out of COVID and all kinds of things, you name it, it's all there. And, you know, it's really hard sometimes, but I do go back to my one slide where I said, make the first move. Mm -hmm. And if you think or sense, and I do truly believe in women's intuition and, but everybody has intuition and I do believe in listening to it. Everybody Mm -hmm. has it. It's Mm -hmm. just some people is are more in tune to it than others. But don't be afraid to reach out because you could save somebody's life with it. You know, we know that with the young people, you know, suicide is quite high right now for a variety of reasons. And, you know, things like that, you know, what if someone had and probably did make the first move, but the other person also has to be open to it. And we've all had times in our life when we're not quite ready to either admit it or face it or talk about it yet. And so it really takes two people. It takes, you know, someone recognizing it and or the person that needs assistance. And sometimes it's as much as just, you know, can I bend your ear when someone wants to get something off their chest, right? Or maybe they want to go for a job or, you know, ask somebody out on a date. You know, you never know. What, <laughs> anything, right? Anything. It's not just always negative. And you, you really want to 
just talk to somebody and both sides, you know, somebody has to make the first move at some point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't be afraid to make the first move, even for something really great, because, you know, if your intuition is wrong, that's okay. There's right. No harm done. Right. Right. So I always think about make the first move because nothing happens without someone doing that. Somebody has to do it. Good or challenging situation. <laughs> Somebody yeah. has to do it. And yeah. so think about that. No, I like that. That's a really but interesting it's hard. perspective. It's really hard. And it and shows your vulnerability on either side. Either side it does. shows your vulnerability. And it's hard to be to show that you're vulnerable. It's hard for me. Still, it is. you know, when I do it every day. Right. I don't say I like it. <laughs> but, I don't uh, know that anybody likes it, right? Nobody it's, likes it. No. It's just getting comfortable with it. Yes. It's something that we have to do if we want to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're on the the flip side where somebody is approaching us and asking, you know, do you need to chat? Can I help you with something? How do we, I feel like we as women often try to be really strong and, right. and at least personally, I'm not always, I'm not always willing to accept that, right? My husband will come up, you look like you need a hug. Can I give you a hug? No, I don't need a hug. I got this. So how can we be willing to accept that help when somebody comes to us? Do you have any advice on that? You know, I get that even at the airport that morning. I was in the bathroom, actually. Not you in the, the airport bathroom stories. That's all I got to say. I know. You know, it's funny. <laughs> you know, a lot of my stories, and I could tell you at Davos, and I got locked in the bathroom at oh. Davos on the Swiss Alps. So it's funny. And then I started thinking, you know, what do I do most of every day? You always, every single day, no matter what happens. <laughs> I visit the bathroom multiple times and I'm usually out and about, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's my vulnerability because I'm out of my element. Right. So, but, you know, I don't reach the paper towels, but I always carry that stuff that you put, you know, on your hands and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the sweet people. It was actually someone that I used to work with. And I had, I didn't know that she was at the conference. I hadn't seen her. And she you know, she stepped forward, I think, because I had talked about it. And she asked if she could reach a paper towel. Aww. And I said, yes, because I had my stuff for my hands in my carry on, which was still at the gate. Right. And, you know, I honestly wasn't probably going to ask anybody because I was in a hurry and I knew I had the stuff at the gate. But, mm-hmm. you know, I did. I swallowed a bit and I, I thanked Beth for doing that. And at the end of the day, it does help you. Mm-hmm. And so we do have to swallow hard sometimes. And nobody likes it. But when you get done, you usually feel better. Agreed. And I, right? I always go back and take to your- that hug, especially <laughs> if your husband recognizes that. That's oh, really good. I don't because know if I can let him. I don't know if I can let him listen to this. Then he'll accept that he's right. And I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's when someone notices that's really a good thing. And we are so busy, Dana, we all are, that we are flying through life. Mm -hmm. And we need, we really, COVID made us do this a little bit. But now I notice even myself, we're getting right back into things. And if we slow down, you know, and really take note of people, we can really help each other a lot more. So take that hug. I think that's a wonderful I, thing. And I you do the still, same for him. I'll still stick to 
a words can melt a heart over take that hug, but also yeah, probably pretty solid advice. Yep. Let me ask you this. Do you recognize when he needs a hug? When I allow myself to, yes. Yeah. And does he take it? Oh, yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> We're not, works, we're not equally it? stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's stubborn. I think we don't want to let our guard down. We can't allow ourselves. For to... me, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't want to let my guard down. I don't want to admit that I'm struggling or I can't get right. through it. But it's also the stubbornness of I can get through this myself. I don't need anybody's help. And yeah, that, you know, Listen, I should really let the keynote that you gave resonate a little bit more and soak in. Like it's okay to ask for help and be the right. person to go ask for help. Right. And we have to be there for each other because a lot of people don't have anybody that mm -hmm. recognizes they need anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we started making investments in mental support as I was exiting the foundation, like with the Red Cross for disasters. There, you know, we actually designated money for. Uh, mental resources after, you know, a hurricane or any mm -hmm. type of emergency, because that was totally being overlooked. And to be honest, that's the most harsh reality is if right. your house burns down or you see it floating down the street, right? Right. So, <laughs> so it's really good. I, I commend both of you. That's great. I want to pivot this discussion a little bit. While we were going through the questions real time on stage, there was a number that I didn't necessarily touch on. I did ask you about your master's, but there was a number about your career and what that progression looked like. So I'm hoping you can walk us through a little bit of that. And then ultimately how you made that jump over to the Caterpillar Foundation, that role. So I started out in IT. I was not an IT person, but they put us through training. And I started in the factory systems, but I was only there about nine months because I would have been, I felt much more interested in the business systems. Where was the data going, you know, to help the business decisions, et cetera. So I skipped over to marketing systems. And that was really an interesting job. Through the next couple of years, I ended up with all of the parts ordering systems, which is very large for Caterpillar when you know we have such a population worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know a lot of the business folks at that time. And then there was a the most influential group at the time. This was the early 80s. It was called NACD. It was the North American Commercial Division. So basically the marketing arm for North America. And Caterpillar does not do direct sales. All of our sales, 100% of them of the machines, et cetera, with some exceptions of some business units through acquisition that they're sold through the dealers. Okay. And so at the time, kind of a pivoting point in people's career, they would always go through NACD because it was the biggest and, and the most vast in terms of experiences. And so I spent nine years there because I had various jobs. And it was usually jobs they needed something. For instance, we needed to do what was called variance. So it's kind of like a rebate when you buy a car, you know, just like on machines, we do that. And we really didn't know what our outstanding variance was at any given time. We knew what our sales were, but we didn't really know if the dealers were going to, you know, send it in or not, et cetera. And so that was a job that had no, you know, existence. So I took it and I, with some other people, created a system 
based on history of when dealers would send in their variants, we would could predict, you know, at the six month mark by model, we usually had about 80% of the request already in. And so for any given model, we finally had some data so that we could, you know, accounting is an important piece, right? Mm, <laughs> and very. what was our accrual for that? And so that was an example. And what was interesting about a year later, I was in a meeting and the department has an above were in there and they were worried accounting was in there because it was coming down the line from the government that we were going to have to accrual for, you know, all of our outstanding, any type of, you know, outstanding monies that we may be on the hook for. Mm-hmm. And they were all up in arms because variance was a, was a large number like it is that most, you know, car dealers have the exact same thing. And so, you know, I'm sitting there listening in the meeting. And then at the end, I said, you know, we have this already. And so I liked getting things that did not exist or were in a lot of trouble and streamlining them. And due to a lot of assignments, I was on the parts side. I was on product support. I worked with the dealers. I worked with the ordering. And then I became a black belt, Six Sigma black belt. Mm -hmm. And so you're very familiar with that. I am. (laughs) And then I moved to a master black belt. And then from there, I became a division manager over parts authorization. So anytime we had a new product introduction, you know, we had to look at what parts are we going to authorize to support that machine worldwide or wherever it was going to be shipped to. And so that was a division manager. And then they put another big piece on to that called a new product introduction where I had the group also that not only would put the parts out, but all product support. So, you know, there's requirements before a machine can be shipped mm-hmm. that you have to have the safety manual and all this. And it was also during tier four, which was the largest initiative any of us ever went through where the government raised the emission standards to, or lowered the emission standards to almost zero. So we had to re-engineer all the machines to, you know, meet that standard, which was a monumental task when you have to redo your product line. Right. So I had these jobs during that time, which the beauty was I got to work with every business unit Mm -hmm. and the product managers, et cetera, just broadened my whole perspective. I was involved with the product, the new product introduction process. Where did we have all the facilities, et cetera. And then after that is when I got the call that the foundation job had come open. And I did, I didn't go into great detail, but I did think hard about it because I was 23 years into my career at that point. Right. And if the foundation job didn't work out for some reason, it would have been hard to come back into the mainstream of the company. For sure. Uh, Because, you know, you just, things move so fast at a fast pace, right? Right. And so I did think about it, but it was a risk I was willing to take. And some of my mentors questioned it. I'll be honest, you know, what are you doing? That's not the path that we have you on. (laughs) But, and I understood that and I appreciated that, but I really wanted this and I felt if it didn't work out, which I was confident it would, but you never know Mm -hmm. that I could get back into the mainstream if need be. So, and if it worked out, I knew it would be my last job at Caterpillar. 
So mm-hmm. that I was all over the place. I did not have a traditional career path at all. I think that can happen for many of us when you start with some of these larger companies. Not every everybody, right? I think a lot of people get into a certain function and are comfortable mm-hmm. there and, and mm-hmm. stay there. But one of the things that you had said while we were doing our Q&A was that you were not smart enough to be an engineer. And <laughs> based on everything you've told me, I disagree with that. I politely <laughs> choose to disagree. I think that the roles you took are very similar to different career right. paths I've seen people take in engineering. So I hope you don't tell us again that you're not smart enough to be an engineer because we're going to yell at you. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you what you all do. I mean, I did not pursue engineering and I was, I'm very much a numbers person and, and engineering is, you know, incredibly number oriented and I liked financials, et cetera. And I'll be honest, had it not been for knowing that I needed healthcare and, you know, I couldn't buy it anywhere else that, and also I wanted to work for Caterpillar to be mm-hmm. honest. that I could see myself being uh, definitely an entrepreneur and also a financial planner. Those are really two passions of mine because it really helps people throughout their whole life being, you know, financially Mm -hmm. stable because when you're not, it takes, it's so much stress. And I love the numbers. I love, I love stocks. I love everything about it. And I think I like, all of that more than the detail of engineering at the time. But I will tell you, a lot of what I do in my life, as I said, is engineering. I'm finishing a house in Florida right now, and my builder's there. And it was a, you know, a house you buy you know, from a big company, so mm-hmm. it is what it is. Right. And he's in there altering a few things right now. And we're actually altering a wall so that I can get my scooter into this particular room. And I was when I met him down there in August on what I was thinking, it was all engineering. Here's the mm-hmm. angle here, <laughs> you right. know, here's everything I need to make this work. And then with the sink and everything, that's a hundred percent leverage. You right. know, we got to We got to put the sink here, you know, put the, the cabinet here, the sink here, and the, the sink has to be as far for as far forward as it can be, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're right. Everything about my life is pretty much engineering. <laughs> And to me, it sounds like you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't necessarily understand the job details to a T, but I have a sneaking suspicion that your work at the Caterpillar Foundation fulfilled some of that entrepreneurial spirit that you have. Yes, it absolutely did. We started programs with the State Department, opening up the first Women's Entrepreneur Center on the continent of Africa in Zambia. That took, you know, the foundation, it took the State Department, and it took a not-for-profit. In Rwanda, we gave a whole district. We partnered with, you know, the government to bring electricity up there, and then Charity Water to actually run the pipeline and the wells. And then a couple of us companies came in, you know, so it's a three-legged stool. It's the private sector, the public sector, and the cost sector. And when you bring those three together, it's everything you said. Who can do what? What are your strengths? What are ours? What do we need to make this happen? And I definitely felt like an entrepreneur with the foundation. Everything about it, I loved. So how did you get into that field? I know I have sold people in the past on transferable skills, but to me, it feels like 
there had to be some some stuff happening in the background to convince people you were the right person for this going from some of your other roles over to this position it absolutely did all of my previous roles played into this i wanted to the foundation to work with the dealers more so on the year of water when we concentrated on water we gave some uh, marketing assets to the dealers to use so that they could, you know, talk about it as well with their customers, et cetera, and bring awareness to this. And also working with the MPI products, I got to work with the general managers of the facilities around the world. And we really wanted to decentralize the grant making and not everything from our group. You know, we had a strategy with three pillars, but we handed that to the facilities and communicated with them please let us know in your area what is needed, you know, within these three pillars. And if you have any suggestions on organizations, please let us know. And then, you know, the foundation staff would bet the organizations, you know, for legalities, especially if it was, you know, outside the United States. So all of my experiences together culminated in that. But so I went in the interview with a plan. I Mm -hmm. always had a strategy coming in. (laughs) But what really helped, too, was the CEO at the time, his name was Doug Overhelman. I had known him for quite a few years before that because it's funny. I always sat at the front of the wing, so I didn't have to walk all the way through the wing to leave, you know, into the space of the elevators and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, in the corner offices, we all know that's where the executives sit. (laughs) Right. The important people. Yeah. Well, I think we're all important, but, you know, the people making the big decisions for sure. (laughs) And so and so I always came into work early because I beat the crowd and I would Mm -hmm. try to get out early and then finish work at home. And they always came in early as well. So they would get to know me and and Doug would sit across from me for a while and and he would always know what I was working on. And so we did different projects together and so forth. And, you know, we remained acquaintances definitely for the next, you know, quite a few years. So he always knew what I was up to. And, and then I had quite a few visible projects. And I think that's important to give people, you know, projects that they can shine in and also see their abilities. And so I had that opportunity as well. So he was well aware of my abilities. And so when it came to the three people and who were interviewed, and then from that group, they took it to Doug. You know, I felt confident because I had a a strategy, but I didn't know who the other two were. Mm -hmm. And so it was a culmination of a lot of reasons. My work, my reputation, my results, my network, and knowing my work is not just your network. You just can't know the person. You got to know the successes. Right. And also, I was very much a people person. And you have to be really diplomatic in that role because we would get probably over 5,000 requests a year. Mm-hmm. And we would accept maybe 300 to 400 only. Right. So you have to be able to say no and make people feel really good about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then also, at that level of a of a role, we were with, you know, high level government officials around the world, including the US. We were with different major company executives as well, you know, if we were doing partnerships, etc. 
you know, the State Department, you know, you really have to understand diplomacy and protocols and all of that. So, and I could do that. And those really were the reasons I feel that I got the job. And in the book, it describes my boss at the time, Jim, you know, that whole process we went through is quite interesting Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. get his perspective. I'm not quite that far in the book yet, but I did start reading it. (laughs) Okay. Next time, spoiler alert. No, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can pick just one. I don't know that if I were in your position, I'd be able to, but do you have a favorite project that you worked on while you were at the Caterpillar Foundation? You know, that's incredibly hard because there were quite a few that were really good benefit to the people on the ground. And it's not necessarily the dollar amount, but the influence that it had. So we did quite a few unique things. We, for the first time, got into advocacy, which was really difficult because, you know, we can't influence policy of a government at all. And so we partnered with the One Campaign, which is Bono's organization, and we really tried to fight for preventable diseases and extreme poverty. And we had some really good wins with that, and they still do today. So a lot of people don't realize in the United States, the level of poverty, for instance, that we have and the challenges when kids grow up in poverty that they have in school and the disadvantages. So we did a lot of investing in early childhood development for the students. And then you also have to work with the parents who are struggling, you know, with the poverty issues that they have. And so we did a lot of good projects. We also did projects, for example, with the Smithsonian, the African-American History Museum, which was opened a few years ago. The Caterpillar Foundation was a charter member into that. And we feel that that definitely is a key project for us as well, things, you know, in that role. And so we had a vast variety. So to pick one is hard, but I like that we ran the foundation like a business, what, you know, the return on investment. Mm-hmm. And I like that we got into new areas such as advocacy because, you know, the Caterpillar brand, if people think that giving people access to water is important, you know, hopefully someone says, oh, well, maybe I should invest in giving people access to water or donating mm-hmm. or volunteering at the food bank. And so we really took that seriously as well. And so it was just a lot of good work, you know, through our partners who actually, you know, execute the work. And, and, you know, I can't say enough about them worldwide either. Thank you for that. And thank you for the nugget on how you came across Bono and got to meet him. I know that's mentioned in your book as well, mm-hmm. which may be, may be a good time to pause. And, you know, if you're looking for more information on Michelle, I'm going to suggest, and you can supplement if there's other things, but I think that the book that you wrote looking up is again, I'm not all the way through it yet, but it's really <laughs> great. It's a, to me, it's just one of those, like there's been a couple of spots. I've got like happy inspirational tears and it just, it's a good read. It's an easy read. And there's some fun pictures in it. Mm-hmm. Michelle, anything else that would help us understand more of your history and some of what you've gone through? You know, it was a, a tremendous day with all of you. It was fun to share, you know, some of my history with it and you know, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard in today's world to have families and work or just, you know, even to be a stay at home mother or father is the world is definitely a challenging place. And, you know, you really have to thrive on others. 
like I do. And, you know, some days are more challenging than others, but you're not alone. And I should take the hug. I heard you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The subtle reminder there. Yep. So it was good. Michelle, thank you for taking time to speak with me again today. Thank you for sharing with all of our listeners about your history. And I hope that they either run across you at other speaking engagements or find time to grab that book and read it as well. It's funny, Dana. I When I checked my email later, I had so many LinkedIn requests. <laughs> so I've been chatting with a lot of the members and it's so delightful. It was a challenging day for me for a personal reasons, but you know, all of those folks really, you know, lifted me up as well. I always like to think that our our membership in general is is just filled with people that bring a smile to my face that make me happy and keep me going. Absolutely. So I'm happy that I was able to share some of them with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to everyone. I hope you make a great day and keep looking up because the view is great. I love that. Keep looking up. Thank you again, Michelle. I'm Dana Johnson. And from all of us at SWE, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your social network. You can keep up to date with our podcast on Instagram at SWE Diverse Podcast and on our blog, altogether at altogether.swe.org.